Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and today I sit down with Andrea O'Donnell, who joined Everlane as CEO in late 2021. I last spoke with Andrea when we met for coffee during New York Fashion Week all the way back in September, when many of her plans were set to hit in spring or summer of this year. Of course, the world has experienced ongoing twists and turns, and who can plan anything? So I wanted to ask Andrea about the state of Everlane's fashion forward glow up. And of course, I have to check in on Everlane's current takes on transparency and physical retail. Welcome, Andrea. Thanks, Jill. Appreciate you asking me. Of course. I'm so excited to catch up. So we had that really fun meeting. I feel like I was like, I like her. Anyway, <laughs> it was I awesome. Like you. <laughs> See, we're going to have so much fun today. And you told me right? a great story because I knew of Michael. Michael's been on the podcast not too long ago, it seems like, but I guess longer ago than I than I know. Um, but you know, he launched the brand. People think of Everlane. If you think of a face, you think of Michael. Tell me about the transfer, how you came, how you got to know Michael, how you got to know the brand. And I guess what what was the talk? What was the discussion? You knew he was leaving. He was looking for somebody new. What was the scenario? Well, I'd always found Everlane fascinating and Michael in the context of Everlane fascinating. I like bold and provocative thinkers and he is definitely one of those people so when I first got the call about this I was intrigued and as much intrigued about the opportunity as actually the idea of meeting him Um, and I met him in San Francisco and I think I've told you this story um, a couple of times now it was a very very interesting interview process i I'm of a certain age and I've been working in retail for probably 13 years now. That ages me quite a lot. But obviously I started when I was 15. And, you know, there's a certain kind of conventional way in which you are interviewed. And Michael approached the process um, in a very unconventional way. Um, Everything from we met in the local coffee shop He pulled out a napkin and he started writing my role profile on the napkin. And then he started a checklist of what he would do and what I would do. And, you know, the conversation evolved. And, you know, he was kind of trying to obviously feel out the personality, feel out the relationship. But I really struck gold when I spoke to him about the kind of person I am and the fact that I'm a Libra. And Libras really like balance in their lives. So I'm always kind of looking for that in any of the roles that I occupy, despite the fact that we work in apparel and life is very turbulent in general. And all of a sudden his eyes lit up and I was kind of like, oh, my goodness, I've got the job because I am a Libra. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing to do with my previous experience of the transformation of that brand, the fact that I've, you know, done everything from strategy to e-com to logistics. It kind of like it boiled down to the fact that I was Libra. And he still tells the story now. He tells the story about me and my horoscope. And he also tells the story about the first time he came to see me where I was living in Santa Barbara. Because Michael has uh, has the uh, he's the kind of person that just pops in and out of your life when you're not actually expecting it. So he actually turned up in where I was living one weekend and I actually picked him up from the airport. And at that point in time, I was driving a vintage gold Mercedes. And he was actually very impressed by that as well. 
Uh, who wouldn't be? Hell yes. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Oh, wait, what is Michael's sign? Or is it complimentary here? I think it is. I can't remember which one it is. It's like Gemini or Aquarius. It's something. It's something. I know that it's compatible with Libra because obviously the first thing that I went home to do was actually look at how compatible we were. <laughs> but yeah, so for everybody listening, just make sure that you check the star sign with future bosses because it certainly worked for me and Michael. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, I would like, I'd be like, I need balance in my life. We need her. Okay. Um, good. Yeah. So Michael is, I think I probably said left the company, but Michael's still in the mix. Tell me Michael's role. Tell me how you all are working together. He's a chairman and climate activist. So obviously he's still, um, he's still an important part of the brand. Um, and he certainly has strong opinions about everything. <laughs> so, um, and for me, it was really helpful to build a, a really strong relationship with him because he obviously created this thing from nothing and, you know, built something that I think he should be very legitimately proud of. And there are still a lot of people that have been part of that journey since the beginning. Um, and obviously his institutional knowledge, his understanding of consumer the way in which he thinks about marketing, it's all really helpful for me to kind of learn from that. As I said at the beginning, that bold and provocative idea about you, how you create value in a very different and new way in apparel. Because up until that point in time, I guess my education had been a bit more conventional, particularly at the kind of price points I was primarily working at. It was, you know, product, price point, distribution, um, so to come at value creation from something that was a bit more about breaking the mold, I was really interested in that. And obviously for me, that's been a great education. Tell me about your fashion background. Um, and I know that I think most recently Decker's yeah. brands and UGG, and that had its own kind of glow up. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, walk me through it. Well, okay. So I've always loved fashion. Um, I was the kind of kid that went in Hale Vogue and... You know, as a student, I thought I was super cool wearing my bowler hat, striped pants and DMs, uh, much to my parents' embarrassment. There were times when they were picking me up from the train station, actually hiding the car. Um, I'd had shop jobs in retail throughout the whole of, you know, my student life, actually, and actually was a sales assistant. I don't know how much this will resonate with your listeners, but at Joseph in South Moulton Street in London, which back in the day was the place to shop, you know. Um, you know, I served everybody from Kylie Minogue to Madonna to Jeff and Bo Bridges. Um, so everybody that was everybody was there, but I didn't really understand that retail head offices existed. You know, I did an economics degree and where I went to school, everybody went into banking and accountancy. So I kind of bumped around for a bit. And then I got a job as how I would best describe it as an assistant to an assistant to an assistant and pretty much worked my way up from there and ended up getting bigger roles in bigger corporates. And about sort of maybe 10 years ago now, I ended up surprising myself by choosing to live in Hong Kong. Um, I moved to work for Lane Crawford, which was a very, very different type of idea because that was luxury. And up until that point in time, I'd only ever worked in mid to premium brands. And that, again, for me, was a really great education because luxury approaches value creation in a very different way. You know, it is all about the product as an heirloom. It is all about longevity, timelessness. And it is a lot about the story and emotion. 
And I think there's a lot that I learned from a different way of creating value that I think is very important in the role that I'm doing now, my previous role, to be entirely honest. And also, I think, in the future of apparel, because, you know, one of the conundrums we're facing at the moment is how do we um, buy better and buy less? Yeah, and then for sure. Deckers, as you mentioned, I ended up at Deckers as a non-footwear person. It was my first footwear job probably about six years ago now. And it was at the beginning of what has since become a sort of brand and product transformation. When I landed at UGG, it wasn't the hottest brand in the, the universe by any stretch of the imagination. It was very much de- defined as a cold weather boot. And it was really mu- very much my responsibility to think about the brand and the product opportunity in a different way. And, you know, it became a, a thing. And as I said, you know, 18 months ago, then I met a bold and provocative thinker and decided to move here. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Well, you know of you knew of Everlane's reputation, yes. um, its placement in the market. What were the opportunities you saw for the brand um, and what you could bring to the table, I guess? Yeah. So I think for me, the biggest um, the biggest attraction, aside from the fact of, you know, it was doing something very original, um, was that it was it was taking climate change very seriously. Um, and I thought that was a great and exciting opportunity, not just because I think if you want to be a progressive brand and you want to be modern and relevant, you have to take that like conundrum really, really seriously. Um, I also liked the team. Um, and I really could see an opportunity for growth, um, both profitable growth, but also from a kind of revenue perspective. And as I would say for the team, and we talk about it a lot, the bigger we get, and we're still quite relatively small, um, the more influence and impact we can have in the industry. So for me, it was really about that as an idea. Um, and I think it's very important. For sure. This is interesting because when we last talked, um, you spoke about bringing, I guess, more sustainability, bringing the Everlane state of mind to more um, events that were are more fashion than, than sustainability. Yes. Is that still a focus? And this rings true. I was just at this caring event where they were talking about collaborating with Cartier, like in a totally competing um, house. And it's it's wild, but it's necessary, yeah? Yeah. So, I, I mean, again, I kind of like like difficult problems to solve. I would say that's kind of what, like, I really enjoy. And, you know, this thing is a difficult problem to solve. You know, the apparel industry has to change. You know, we have to tackle oversupply you know the landfill issue in the US is is very significant I mean I read I think two weeks ago there's some California legislation coming through um, and in the argument for it it talks about the fact that 91 pounds of materials are going into landfill per capita in the US every year and you know the landfill apparel landfills increased by 55 percent and since 2000 so you know, there are issues. And I think you probably saw IPCC this week talked about the fact that we're not on track to hit our climate goals. So, you know, in the industry, we have to start taking this seriously and we have to resolve some of these tensions, which is, you know, we've educated consumers to be very interested in 
trend and very interested in promos. Both of those are kind of contradictory with longevity, with timeless style, with, you know, this idea that we're cultivating within our business of a forever wardrobe. Um, so we don't have the, all the answers. Everlane certainly doesn't. Um, but we do have, I think, the foundations of something that is is well-placed. A lot of our product is carryover. So around 70% of our product is actually timeless by definition. And the newness that we're bringing in is very purposeful. Everything has to have a role. And as I say, again, with to the team a lot, you know, product without a story is just more stuff. So we have to be really purposeful about how we bring new product into the world. Um, so I think, you know, we have the kind of foundational ingredients and we've obviously done a lot of work on sustainability. You know, 70% of our materials are preferred. You know, we're working towards B Corp this year. We've got our impact report out on in um, during Earth Month. So, you know, we're doing a lot of the right things, our range architecture, and now our product and brand strategy is set up in the right way. But there is still this ongoing conversation about how do you resolve the industry issue, which is oversupplying the market. Oh my gosh. So is this about getting supply right, incorporating more AI? Are you bringing new, I guess, recycling capabilities, resale, all of these things that other brands are trying? Yeah, I think for us, the focus really has been evolving the brand expression. Um, I think, you know, back in the day, the Everlane story was radical transparency, disruptive pricing. It was much more probably left brain and rational. And actually, our consumers told us, that we had the opportunities to be more style driven because that's more of a driver of purchasing decisions than anything overly intellectual. So we had an opportunity to be more style driven, more emotional, more aspirational. Um, and so we're moving in that direction and we're building a product strategy that is based around this idea of a forever wardrobe, timeless style, conscious craft, purposeful design, um, and that has been work in progress probably since Matilde started in 2022. Um, and we're seeing that product strategy, brand strategy really come into the market now. Um, but as I say, we don't have all the answers yet. And we're still feeling our way towards what this looks like. I mean, obviously, nobody has the answers. Otherwise, the IPCC wouldn't be saying what they're saying. Um but yeah, we're, we're working hard on doing the right thing. And I think, again, for us, the opportunity is to get our kind of e our own ecosystem right and in good order, and then really to start growing beyond where we, we are at the moment. Because again, going back to what I said before, the more we can evidence that this works, that there is this idea of sustainable style that does excite cons consumers and actually does reduce CO2 emissions, that you can be healthy and profitable and not oversupply the market. The bigger we can get in the context of that idea, the more influential we'll be. So that's kind of, you know, long story short, the intention. Yeah. Well, you've mentioned some, I guess, evolution of the brand in terms of more storytelling, more um, style infused. Did this mean um, bringing some experts in-house? Um, did that exist in Everlane or what changes were needed to get there or have been? Yeah, I'm Matilde, sure it's still Matilde's ongoing. New. So Matilde started in 2022 
And she has a really great uh, resume. She's worked everywhere from Milena Berger, Marnie, Sonia Ricciel. She's a St. Martin's alum, but she understands just intuitively what sustainable style really means. Um, and it's really, I mean, she wouldn't be here if she didn't take that idea very seriously. So I would say she's a very, not just a really strong creative, but also very pragmatic and purposeful. You know, she wants to do things with intent. She wants to put product out there that is long lasting and, you know, that the craft story is evident. And that's not easy at our price points. Um, so she's excited by the idea of what we could be from a creative perspective. And I think she's been really instrumental in helping us understand how to do this in an engaging way. But obviously everybody would say it takes a village. And I think one of the great things about Everlane is we've got a lot of very passionate and opinionated people on the team. Um, (laughs) And, you know, they are all playing a role in this journey. And I think there's one thing, there's another thing. I overuse a lot of terms in the business and I'm sure you've heard this said several different ways by many different people is this whole idea of building the boat as we're sailing it or what's the other one about the plane can't remember (laughs) but this is you know the conversation we're having at the moment which is you know we want to evolve the brand expression we're building a new product strategy we don't have all the answers yet and we're feeling our way towards an answer for both the planet and consumers that kind of collectively works Um, we're very keen or I'm particularly keen not to put hard lines around anything as of yet and I think it's kind of interesting territory because I think when people kind of talk about brand evolutions the first thing they want is a brand book they want to know the font size what homepage you know they want all of that really codified and I'd rather do a bit more of a test and learn you know I'm keen to push the boundaries what we think we can do and we're certainly pushing the boundaries a lot of what we would say was conventional Everlane wisdom but I think in this market with these consumers and just for where Everlane's at I think testing and learning um, and educating ourselves collectively um, is the best solution. Let's circle back to again the transition early, early period. Maybe what what proved most challenging. Um, obviously, you're coming from a larger corporate structure. Uh, I'm sure you you know it wasn't as evolved in terms of the sustainability, yes. and maybe you have new barriers, boundaries to deal with, to work with. Um, and I'm sure, yeah, coming in as I've done in the past, like as a new boss of a team after they're used to working with others or maybe doing things a different way. Tell me about some of those challenges. Well, I mean, I started in October, what, 21, uh, which again, for those of your listeners that were not immersed in the D2C world at that point in time, or just in retail in general, it was the beginning. I mean, it was kind of interesting because we thought, you know, obviously a pandemic was a, a shock to the system but then it continued to get more turbulent towards the end of 21. We had everything from, you know, the industry-wide supply chain challenges, um, you know, D2C is this kind of like, you know, shiny object that had existed for quite some period of time. People were less enamored with it. Um, Inflation in raw materials. There was a lot of headwinds, I would say, 
Um, so coming into an organization that was just dealing with a lot of challenges, I would say my first priority was the team. Um, and to uh, be a cheerleader for the team. You know, sometimes as a leader, it kind of is appropriate to take a more sort of rational perspective on the opportunity. But I could tell coming into Everlane that the team needed support. You know, they needed me to be their advocate, ally, to help them resolve some of these difficult issues that they were facing just in the execution of business as usual. I mean, who knew our customers would go from wearing pajamas and slippers into track, into denim, and now into occasion wear, in addition to all of the other challenges. So my first responsibility was for the team and to stabilize the team and to support the team, to really understand and get myself educated in the business fundamentals, and then to start collaborating on the strategy, which was... As I said before, a kind of evolution of the brand, a new product strategy, a path to profitability, and a refreshed relationship with consumers. You've actually used the word profitability about three times. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about the path to profitability. Um, well, we're on it. <laughs> uh, we're on it. And I think we're making really, really strong progress. Uh, we're making really strong progress and there is a lot to be proud of going into 23 I think for most brands it was a very uncertain outlook in fact you know I'm sure again you've had this conversation with numerous people we thought 22 was very turbulent and then you started speaking to people at the end of 22 talking about the outlook for 23 and the consensus view in December, as I was advised by various very well-educated finance people, was it was going to get worse. <laughs> oh, my God. So great. I was still like, okay, great. Uh, another 12 months of hard work, you know, three steps forward, two steps back on a good day. Um, so we set the budget for 23 with, I would say, even in the context of people saying the macroeconomic environment is going to get worse, not better, um, with cautious optimism, we felt very confident that where we were taking the brand and the product was both value additive to existing customers, but also for those people that didn't really understand the Everlane brand or weren't aware of it, um, was positioned really, really well. I think there's this whole kind of zeitgeisty moment. And in fact, I think it's reflected in all the catwalks, this kind of return to you know, timeless style, this respect for craft. Um, yeah. I think there is a lot going on now in fashion, which whether it's a reflection of what the apparel industry is doing to the planet or whether it is just a recognition that consumers want something that feels, you know, just longstanding and, you know, timeless and trustworthy and appropriate um we're re very well positioned in the context of that you know as I say we don't express ourselves as a trend-driven brand and I think that is very appealing to a large number of people so we came into this year feeling very confident about it we had a product strategy with more design intent in various categories dresses I don't know whether you've had a look at our dresses recently Jill but I must admit they look very strong um and dresses for us 
we hadn't really, our dress business was tiny. It was kind of probably less than maybe 5% of our sales. And obviously dresses, particularly in women's apparel, is a significant um, category. So we did more dresses. We knew our customers were telling us they wanted to buy more from us. So, you know, we gave them what they asked for. And we're seeing a lot of success in that. Um, so, yeah, so we've started this year. We've started this year with some really promising signs that products checking, brand expression is checking. Um, and that's all in the context of the hard work the team has done on multiple different levels, including materials, margin, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. I had peeked in your dresses and I remember that you referenced um, an inspiration being Renee Russo in a Thomas Crown Affair. And I see it. I see that dress. <laughs> Congrats. Thank you. And it's fortunate yeah. because we have a lot of women working in the organization. So as we're developing these new ideas, we do have a lot of those types of conversations. You know, who would wear it? Where would you wear it? Why would you wear it? You know, we don't have to put formality around those conversations. We can have those as part of the range building process. And because of those conversations, we have a lot of intention and purpose around the product that's in the collection. Um, and we don't like waste. I think waste in any organization is inefficient. But again, as a sustainable brand, every new idea really has to have rigor and thought around it. And we have a very captive audience that sits in the office that's very keen to tell us whether they would wear it or not. And oftentimes, to be honest, Jill, I'm wrong. <laughs> there have been a number of examples where design has been very, very uh, passionate about certain, what I would consider to be fashion-forward product, only for me to ask some of the people in the office who are more mainstream fashion in leaning whether they would buy it or not, and they voted for it, so it gets to stay. Ha <laughs> ha! Uh-huh. Interesting. Well, let's go through some of the changes you had talked about. So, what wedding perfect dresses? There was some formal suiting at the time yeah. back in September. Um, sexy, but not. I don't know. I would say slutty, sexy, but intellectual <laughs> sexy. Yeah, intellectual sexy. <laughs> you never said slutty. That's yeah, that's no, not a word. Um, <laughs> and then also. Um, Coming in summer, you were anticipating to roll out these kind of icons like the perfect tea, the perfect denim. Is that all still to come? What is the consumer behavior telling you about that plan that you had back, I don't know, six months ago? Well, it's telling us that the newness is working. Great. Again, for our uh, business, newness is a small proportion of the total. As I said before, you know, we're kind of built as a sustainable brand, which is great because the foundations are already set. But newness for us last year was probably about maybe 5% of our total sales. And at the moment, it's 20. Wow. We are seeing the product we're putting out into the world. People appreciate it. So that's great. And then I would say that for us, the strategic opportunity in spring summer was always dresses. And that's like 100% up on the year, but from a very low base. So we are ticking all the boxes, but again, it's apparel. So we're not going to get everything right. And we are still learning uh, what we have, what our customers give us permission to do outside of what traditionally has been the heartland of Everlane, denim and tees and, and, and sweaters. 
considering the economy, are you um, maybe are you seeing changes in what people are buying, or maybe basket size, or maybe the customer that's buying is changing, or what's happening? Yeah, I mean, I think look, twenty twenty two. Uh, we stay very close to the market and we certainly consume a lot of, I would say, expert opinions on consumers that can come from multiple different sources. It can come from Google. It can come from Goldman. You know, we're constantly looking to educate ourselves because obviously we're trying to move very fast. We're building the boat as we're sailing it. So keeping an, an attentive eye on how consumers are changing, both in terms of the categories they're consuming but also their sensitivity to promo um, is very important to us. And I would say 22 was pretty turbulent because of the macro environment, but just, again, cyber for, I think, many turned into not a weekend. It was probably six weeks. (laughs) So we came into 23 being very cautious about the fact that our customers, both existing and acquired, would be price sensitive. You know, they have less money to spend. They want to be more considerate about how they're spending it. And there are lots of other much bigger brands than us uh, sitting on quite a lot of inventory who could and would choose to discount. And we're in competition with those brands. So you are right. keeping a very close eye on consumer sentiment and how competitors are responding to that. I would say that, again, since the beginning of this year, we've been pleasantly surprised by how much revenue we can generate without having to resort to those kind of tactics. So for us, consumers are holding up well. And I think some of it, again, goes back to this new product and design strategy. I think, you know, nobody needs more stuff, but everybody wants more beautiful things in their life, right? So yes. you tell that story about why your beautiful things really matter, that's going to resonate. And as I say, I think now more than ever, people are looking for probably less choice. And we have a very, very tight edit. You know, they want a brand to be an editor for them and more of a decision maker. Um, and we do do that. And as I say, every single product we put into new arrivals and out into the world is very purposefully designed. And I'm kind of hoping that people can really see that in the value equation that we're now offering. So for us, as I say, touch wood, um, things are working. What would you say, obviously, direct-to-consumer, that model got the (laughs) shakeup with the privacy rules and that Facebook machine no longer proving as reliable. And for first of all, what is now working to, I guess, acquire customers to drive sales? Like, what is something that's proving effective? I think this is a kind of big conversation that everybody's having at the moment. And I could go down the rabbit hole of meta inflation versus Google search tactics, et cetera, et cetera. I think there's a lot of readjustment. Everybody's readjusting how much they spend, what they spend it on. And especially if you sit in the digital world, there's a whole conversation about LTVs to CACs. Anyway, I don't think your listeners want to be bored with that. I think this A little bit. (laughs) I mean, we're nerdy here at Glossy. Go ahead. (laughs) I I think for us... I think what we think is important beyond all of that and beyond social influencers, TikTok, which we do think is important, 
Um, Because obviously you want to spend your time, money, and you have to tell your brand stories in the places where they'll be seen in the right way. So there's a, a lot of complexity, I think, in digital marketing now. I would say, though, that one of the areas that we continue to see promise in is PR. Um, And, you know, I don't know whether it's overlooked in mid to premium. I'm kind of probably not. Um, I think the luxury guys for a very long period of time have been focused on that really lovely combination of sort of events, PR influencers. And you can see it from all the coverage they get from it. For, for us, that's what we started investing in in 22. So building capsule collections that had a story, and that story was a story about the brand that we could bring to life through an event, through a, a launch, and then amplify through influencers and social. So that is something we started doing in 22. With kind of serious intent, I think the first time I met you, so sort of fashion week, And we're planning to do more of those types of stories throughout 23. We started in January with a kind of elevated daywear collection story. And the materials were everything from, you know, a knit made out of a regeneratively sourced eucalyptus, which is a wood pulp, into tensile. So, you know, the kind of brand narrative, which is really sustainable style, purposeful design you can really bring that story to life through these capsule collections and as I say the events amplify the story get the word out we don't have the money of many of other other competitors competitors larger scale businesses and brands but that is something that we're going to continue to do more of Great. And what, what's your current take on direct-to-consumer? Have you been leaning more into wholesale partners, retail partners? I think the intention is for us definitely to diversify our channel mix. We only have 11 shops at the moment, and e-com is 75% of our business. So, you know, and the fact is, is when you look at, you know, channel sales, Retail still accounts for a significant lion's shares of where people want to spend their time and money. So I kind of think it would be disrespectful of us not to put our brand in front of people where they want to spend their time and money. Um, and wholesale for me, having come from UG, you know, I recognize how that can be a very strategic decision. You know, you can use it both to drive revenue as well as to drive marketing, eyeballs, positioning. There's a lot of ways that wholesale can serve the brand, not just from a financial perspective. Tell me about growth opportunities. Is it more in category expansion, international expansion, all of the above? Yeah, all, all of the above. <laughs> so yeah. I would say this year is let's work out what we have in all of the work we did last year. So new product strategy, new brand strategy. Um, we have a new lead of Ecom, Kelly, is doing an amazing job. Um, and we opened a couple of shops last year. So we're working on that. And then 24 is really about growth, which will mean diversification. So it'll mean more shops. It will probably mean wholesale. And it will mean a more concerted effort on international. We do think that there's a significant, well, we know there's a significant opportunity in the U.S., You know, every time we've done the calculations and consultants have come in to advise us, you know, they've talked about an addressable market 
of more than a billion for us. And I really believe that. Um, there are many conscious consumers out there that don't have a lot of alternatives and Everlane will give them that alternative. So, you know, I think if we can improve our awareness and consideration, and some of that, to be honest, comes through from opening shops, um, we can access that addressable market in the US. Yeah. Are you changing what the Everlane store looks like? What what gets people into store? I think we will at some point. <laughs> yeah. I think, but right now it's working. There are still lines from what I know. Yeah, it, it's still working. I would say going back to kind of my original point around what consumers told us they loved about the brand, but where they saw the opportunity. I think our shops are very clean, they're very minimal. On, you know, sometimes I think they can read a bit like a laboratory, a science lab. So I do think there's an opportunity for us to get a bit more emotional, read a bit more around style, sustainability. You know, we want to do both of those two things. Um, I think that's, you know, important for the brand, important for the customer. Um, yeah. Yes. Oh, my God. Do you, you have huge Earth Month plans, I would assume. Yes, we do. Um, our impact report comes out and we've got a lot of communications around all the good work that we're doing. I think the one thing that we're debating is the role of capsule collections in the context of Earth Month. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because what people tend to do is put more product out in the world. And we're having this very lively debate about, well, is that appropriate or should we not just be celebrating all the good work we're doing with the product we have? So this Earth Month will definitely be more focused around that, how we tell interesting stories about why you should care about organic cotton versus conventional cotton, you know, why recycled cotton is actually very difficult to get access to, but how it's much more important to the planet. Regenerative materials. Um, so we'll be using that opportunity to tell those types of stories. And for 24, we're now starting to build our, our strategy for that period of time. But as I say, it's a very lively discussion. Do we want to more, put more product out there or do we just want to tell the story of the product we've got? Have you done more collaborations uh, or has Everlane since you joined the company considering the UG, the UG play? No, we haven't yet. And I think, again, part of that is you know, this concern about putting more product out into the world without it being purposeful. And, you know, if I was to talk to some of the kind of the things that keep me up at night, not that, you know, I don't like to put my anxiety out in the world, but, you know, <laughs> beyond the kind of industry conundrum and the strategic challenge of climate change, there is also this whole piece of the jigsaw puzzle which is how do you make sustainability storytelling interesting you know you don't want to trivialize the subject but at the same time you kind of don't want to be a buzzkill um so it's and I don't think anybody's doing it if you ever find anybody Jill that you think is doing a really good job at this you must tell me um but I think for us that is really a focus for us in 23 you know, how do we tell a story around organic cotton that people really want to read? I know. What I was, I feel like you and I don't know if you've met her, Marie Claire from Caring, would I just spoke with her. We yeah. have a great conversation because 
Um, gosh, what was she saying? That to the extent of climate change, like it's in your face. She listed all these examples of things that have just happened that are so obvious. Um, and she's like, it's happening. It's reality. She alluded that to the people are starting to pay attention. But what what is your take on consumer sentiment? In my eyes, which I'm not an insider in a fashion brand, people, consumers are only care, quote unquote, care when they're looking for trouble is how I posed it to her. Like they want to know where you're falling short. Um, or is it driving purchases or it depends on the shopper, I'm assuming, but go ahead. I mean, yeah, it does depend on the shopper. I think people are caring about it increasingly more. Um, they are, but Sheen exists. You know, it's not like, it's not like we can, uh, there are brands that, I mean, fast fashion is not going away. So if you take that as evidence of how much the, <laughs> the consumer cares about fast fashion, in general, you would say, then why does that category of apparel exist? And it exists. So there's that reality. Every time we ask our customers about the importance of sustainability, it's in their top five. Style is usually a kind of top three, fit, comfort, and pricing. So the top three is still the age-old top three. Um, I think sustainability will move up the priority list. But again, we're talking about consumers that are a bit more strapped for cash than they probably were a couple of years ago. And that changes consumer sentiment. I do think the industry, and I take it very seriously as a brand, is the whole education piece of this. You know, why, why buy better but buy less? Um, and I think it is our responsibility to kind of engage consumers in that narrative and educate them, excite them with that, because the industry has born and brought a generation up. And that I, that includes my kids to get interested in promotions and trends. It's kind of a bit like sugar. You know, you know, it's really bad for you, but you can't stop eating that chocolate. You know, so <laughs> we have to find a way. We have to find a way, I think, of creating engaging communication around this, but also delivering great style at the same time. So as I say, that's kind of the conversation we're having at the moment, which is how do we do both? I would say we've managed to do a lot of communication on sustainability that oftentimes reads like a science lesson. <laughs> yes. I, I don't know how to spin it in a sexy way and intellectually sexy. I think same goes for your... <laughs> this is the thing. Because I think modern sexy is that, is style and sustainability. I think that is the new thing. But I think there isn't, we're still feeling our way towards that solution. I'm kind of really hoping that social will help us tell this story in a much more fun way. And again, it kind of goes a bit back to the conversation we had with the, at the beginning is, you know, Eveline was a brand that was like born of an idea and, uh, sort of communication strategy. It was a story. Evelyn was a story. And I think there is a lot to be admired in that and a lot to learn from that. And I think as we head into this kind of new direction, that engaging story combined with really great product that, you know, is part of your forever wardrobe, I think that's differentiated. Um, but it's a, it's a new narrative. It's not a well-established one. Uh, so yeah, so it's exciting for us. 
Well, I would, we're running out of time, I know, but I would say um, for as the consumer maybe changes their priorities as they're pinching pennies, um, obviously every brand is not rolling in the dough and maybe changing priorities. Everlane, sustainable, sustainability first. There's no maybe cutting corners or um, how would you just, is that basically goes without saying, <laughs> how would you describe it? Um, in terms of what we're doing, well, as I say, the intention is to, deliver to consumers this idea of a forever wardrobe, you know, something that you feel, you know, enables you to live your best life with the least impact on the planet. And again, I always say this thing, you know, we we want to be selling a story about the life you could be living when you're wearing Everlane clothes and that life you're living is both very stylish, very aspirational, intellectually sexy, however you want to describe it, but also kind on the planet. So you're a conscious consumer in engaging with us as a brand, but you're also living the dream of the life you could be living. Love it. Anything else we can expect this year before we sign off? I know 2024 is a big one. I think men's is coming, a men's update there. But yeah, what else can you talk about? Um, What else can I talk about? I think this year is really about executing the plan. So more special design, a new and evolved brand expression, and more stories being told about the brand, being part of that cultural conversation. Right on. Looking forward to seeing all the newness, but not wasteful newness. Exactly. We have to balance it all here. (laughs) I love it. Don't offend Andrea. Anyway, thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jill. Take care. That's all for this episode. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. Be sure to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to The Glossy Podcast. See you next week.